This is the Getsy Health Podcast with Janique and Tristan Roney. Hey, you guys. Welcome back to the Gutsy Health Podcast. This is Janique Roney, and I don't have my co-host with me, Gina Warfel. She's on vacation in Austin, Texas, and I'm so happy for her. But we have a really fantastic guest on today, Daryl Bouchard. He works with Redmond Real Salt. I'm going to let him introduce you, but today we're going to be unpacking salt and the misconceptions around salt. Daryl, wouldn't you say salt is one of the most misunderstood nutrients out there or substances out there. And it's been so demonized and that's really to our detriment. You're absolutely right. You know, if you look at any of the history books, all civilization started around access to the salt deposits, religious books, historic books, and salt has always been essential for life. And yet in the last 30 or 40, 50 years, we've heard that salt's this terrible thing. We have to avoid it. But if we go to the hospital, the first thing they do is they give us an IV right. of saline solution, which is salt water. <laughs> so there's obviously a disconnect. It's like such a big disconnect. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Daryl, tell us how you got into the salt world. Tell us about you and your life before we like start jumping into the, the juiciness of how salt is actually really great for us. Well, I'm one of those crazy people that just think salt is a fascinating topic. There's a, there's a small few of us. There's a couple of great writers who have written on salt, and, and I just love the topic. So uh, I grew up in central Utah, and it just so happens that under my grandfather's farm, there was an ancient seabed. And so in the 1950s, my grandfather and his brother, the farm was kind of struggling, and they knew there was salt under their farm because it had been harvested by the Native Americans in, the, in this particular central Utah Valley before the you know, pioneers and settlers had come through the West. Mm-hmm. And so they knew there was salt under their farm. And so they got a bulldozer and plowed the alfalfa out of the way and started selling salt to local farmers for their cows. And, and it, the cows seemed to like it a lot better. In fact, the cows would eat this salt before they'd eat the processed white salt blocks. And, mm-hmm. and it tasted better. But it wasn't until the 1970s when a nutritionist came through and the health food movement was really starting to take off that this nutritionist wrote about how this ancient mineral salt from Utah was the healthiest and tastiest salt on the market, in his opinion. And so the family sat around and said, what do we call this stuff? It's not processed salt. It's not fake salt. It's it's just real salt. Mm -hmm. And the name stuck. And so that's (laughs) how real salt was born. And how I was kind of born into this uh, amazing industry, at least in my opinion, this amazing salt industry that uh, people are just starting to learn more about. That's so amazing. And how, like, how did they even know that there was this like underground salt, like cave under their farm? Like, I'm, I'm so curious about that story. Well, every civilization started around access to salt deposits. Mm-hmm. So it might've been near the coast where, they could take seawater that occurs at about 2 to 3% sodium chloride, and they could take that seawater and evaporate it into salt crystals. Or it was around mineral deposits, these ancient seabeds that have been pushed up near the surface. And so there's a spot in Pakistan that the Himalayan pink salt comes from. There's a spot in Bolivia where this Bolivian pink comes from. Mm-hmm. And there's a spot in Utah that has this ancient mineral salt. And the early early man would watch animals because animals need salt like people do. Mm -hmm. And so the animals would seek out these salt deposits and then 
humans would follow the animals to the salt deposit. And that's how the early pioneer, the early settlers coming through, knew there was salt in this area because it had been eaten by the early animals in the area and had been discovered by the Native American population and then was discovered again by the you know, pioneer settlers you know, moving through the West so into cool. the California region. So, so cool. I want to get back to like the, the different kinds of salt you mentioned, like pink Himalayan salt uh, and that salt bed. But um, before we do, let's talk about like, is salt really bad for us? And should we try and eliminate it from our diets? I know the answer to that, but like, like what's the story behind that? And how did salt become demonized in the first place? You know, salt, as I mentioned before, you know, before the invention of the refrigerator, all of us, which, which actually maybe was a, a big part of our health problems today, but all of us would have eaten more salt because right. we'd have eaten fermented foods like sauerkraut and mm-hmm. kimchi and fermented veggies. We would have eaten meat, meat. that would have been mm-hmm. preserved yes. in salt. And yet we didn't have all this blood pressure, you know, water retention, you know, all of this problems linked to salt today. Mm-hmm. And so, but there was a couple of doctors. There was a Dr. Dow who years ago wrote an article, and I can send you a copy for the show notes if you'd like. That'd be amazing. But the article was called Evidence for Relationship Between Sodium Chloride Intake and Human Essential Hypertension. Mm-hmm. And we know that salt's job in the body is to regulate intercellular and extracellular fluids. And when those fluids are out of balance, it does cause or it can cause problems. And so these doctors did a study and they said rats or mice, I can't remember which, copious amounts of sodium. I mean, massive, incredible amounts. And they noticed that Mm -hmm. when you feed them (laughs) these incredible amounts, sure enough, they have some problems. But the same would be true for everything amounts of water. Yes, yes, exactly. We could do a rat study on water and like overhydrate rats and see them die. You know, so like and and we see that a lot with like, you know, research with like essential oils and research with like resveratrol and research with like B12 and all that jazz. So, I'm so glad that you brought that bad science to the surface because this happens consistently and unfortunately these bad like papers create cultural waves and then we can't get rid of it, you know? So, so keep going. Well, yeah. So once that study was done, everybody thought, well, salt's bad. And so we started to create salt substitutes, which are its mm-hmm. own set of problems. Um, we started to avoid salt in general and that causes problems because we can talk about digestion and, and salt's important role. And yep. sodium is essential to balancing the, the fluids in the body. Mm-hmm. And so with this low salt, now there's actually studies from the American Journal of Medicine that show that actually low salt intake causes more cardiovascular disease risk factors than extremely high intake. Mm-hmm. And what really is important is the balance of fluids and the balance of the other electrolytes yes. and not just a single focus on one particular electrolyte. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because a lot of times when people actually have, and I hope it's okay if I just get a little sciencey here, but a lot of the time, especially in our standard American diet, we're eating processed foods that are super high in salt but we don't have those other minerals to like counterbalance it, like potassium, for instance. So if you're looking at packaged American food, super high sodium, hardly any potassium to balance it out, inflammatory polyunsaturated fatty acids. Whereas when you're looking at a whole food, like plant-based diet, you have sodium and potassium in those vegetables. And so that potassium tends to, to help balance out the sodium. What we are saying in our society is, oh my gosh, look at 
when we unbalance sodium and like we have so much sodium and no potassium, we're creating like hypertension. So therefore just cut back on the sodium. What we really should be saying is actually no, bring up the potassium and actually bring in the whole foods too. Like bring in the other minerals to balance that out because it's, it just seems so counterproductive to cut out a mineral that is so helpful for you. And not only, you know, you mentioned digestion and adrenals. And I want to touch on that really fast because most women listening right now, because the majority of my audience are female and have had babies, um, our adrenals are shot. All right. Our adrenals, they're these stress glands. All right. They, they produce cortisol and they help our bodies adapt to stress. And a lot of times when, you know, we can tell when you have adrenal fatigue, it's like 2 p.m. and you want to take a nap. That's adrenal fatigue. Well, the adrenal glands require sodium, potassium, and vitamin C. So if we're cutting out all this sodium, we're not feeding our adrenals. If we're not feeding our adrenals, we want to take naps and we're exhausted throughout the day. But Daryl, do you, do you care if I keep going? <laughs> no, you're, you're exactly right. And in addition to that, low sodium also is linked to insulin resistance. Which yeah. you know causes a whole bunch of problems in addition to the, the adrenals you're mentioning. So yeah, please keep mm-hmm. going. Yeah, exactly. Well, and another thing too. Oh, and I want to add to brain, brain health as well. Um, something that Gina taught me the other day, but let's talk about like digestion, for instance, because I always tell listeners and in the gutsy membership, I teach a whole class on digestion and the holy grail to digestion is hydrochloric acid in the stomach. Now, when you look at sodium, it's NA and it's CL, it's sodium and it's chloride bound together, right? Well, the body separates that and uses the Na, the salt, the sodium, and then the body will filter out the chloride to create hydrochloric acid in the stomach. So if you're decreasing your salt intake, you don't have enough sustenance to create hydrochloric acid in the stomach to break down your food. Therefore, you're not absorbing your food. Therefore, you have like malabsorption. Therefore, you start to get sick. So we need this salt to get the chloride, to pump it into our stomach, to break down our food. So if you're cutting out, and, and again, Daryl, you mentioned earlier, there's like synthetic salt, there's bad salts, like, but the, you're talking about like real salt, you know, real salt that has like the sodium, the chloride, the minerals, it has the whole shebang, right? It's like an entourage. It's this entourage effect in the body. We can't hyper isolate them. It's going to create imbalances. One last thing I wanted to mention too is like blood pressure. If we don't have salt, like a lot of women have low blood pressure, right? So if we have low blood pressure, that actually means because of gravity, we're not getting a super adequate like blood flowing to our brain. And if we don't have enough blood flowing to our brain over years, that's going to lead to like mental decline. So women who get up really fast and get head rushes or men, even people that get lightheaded, people that, you know, you get a little woozy when you get up super fast, like we have low blood pressure and that's not a good thing. Too low blood pressure is bad, too high blood pressure is bad. So we need that sodium. We need these things to help us maintain our blood pressure in an adequate way so that we can help our brain, so we can help our adrenals, so we can help our digestion. So you guys, salt is huge. (laughs) And unfortunately, we demonized it. We, we took it out of context and we put it in our really like toxic American culture and we hyper focused on sodium and not the potassium that we get from like fruits and vegetables. And we created this disconnect. So anyways, Daryl, keep going. <laughs> no, I, I love how you connect it all to, you know, back to gut health and stomach health, because, you know, we often think of sodium and balancing fluids, which it does, but the gut is such an important part of our immune system. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody hears salt bad and they switch to a low salt diet yes. um, or they switch to a salt substitute, they actually start having 
indigestion problems and yes. a series of immune problems because mm-hmm. their bodies are designed to run off sodium and chloride. And, and then all these other complex chlorides as well, potassium chloride, magnesium chloride, calcium chloride. And so if we were to take an orange and we were to suck out the vitamin C and then sell the orange left over, it's not the same right. as the orange in nature. And salt actually has gone through a similar type change. So if mm-hmm. we talk about salt, you know, hundreds of years ago, salt was this complex, mostly sodium chloride, but it, it was a whole food item. Yes. And then years later, now salt companies can take out from seawater, which occurs with potassium chloride, magnesium chloride, calcium chloride. Salt companies can take out the potassium chloride. Mm-hmm. They can take out the magnesium chloride. They can take out the calcium chloride. And then they can sell the kind of the remaining sodium chloride with a few right. other minerals intact. Right. When you do that, not only does it impact the flavor because you know, if you look at salt in nature, it has kind of a snowflake. All of the, all the crystals are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. If you look at the, the salt coming out of the ocean, like the gray salt, they line that pond with the gray clay. And so when they rake up the, the salt crystals off the bottom of that evaporative pond, mm-hmm. you get some mineral-rich gray clay with that that helps add to the minerals and add to the flavor. Do the same process in Hawaii, and you get a kind of a red Hawaiian, kind of a dusty because of that, those minerals in the salt. Mm-hmm. And so salt has always been more of this complex item instead of this process right. mineralized. And there's two processes that people need to be aware of that happen to a lot of salt. Years ago, we might have said, hey, you know, who has heard sea salt better? And my guess is most people would raise their hand. But today, that's not the case. And so I think listeners need to be aware that just because it says sea salt on the label, mm-hmm. it might be sea grade. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're saying sea grade is like the highly processed, everything that is complementary to it has been pulled out. That's what you're saying, correct? Yeah, there's two processes that salt undergoes today. And, mm-hmm. and taking it away from that holistic, natural, the way salt was always meant to be savored. And so the first of those I already touched on, and that is that you know, salt companies today can pull out some yeah. of those minerals that occur in the seawater or the ancient seabed through a series of evaporation ponds. They can leach out a few of those other electrolytes that, mm-hmm. that are important. The second factor, which is actually a bigger deal, is salt. We talked on before. Its goal in the body, one of the main goals for the sodium side of salt, is to regulate moisture, the mm-hmm. intercellular and extracellular fluids. Well, salt is hygroscopic, meaning if we put a salt crystal on a table in a humid area, that salt crystal is going to get wet as it sucks water, kind of dehumidifies the room Mm -hmm. because it's that it sucks water, which is why it works in the cells the same. So one of the downsides of that is if you put salt in a shaker and it is wet outside because it's raining Mm -hmm. or humid, the salt crystals will absorb moisture. And so years ago, some scientists got together and said, what can we do to this salt crystal? What can we coat it with to stop salt's ability to attract moisture? Mm -hmm. And at the time, they thought this was a great idea because, you know, when it rains outside, your salt gets sticky in the shaker and it won't flow. And you could put rice in it or a few different things. But they said, what kind of chemical is the industrial revolution, right? What chemicals (laughs) can we add to the salt to make it more convenient? Well, they didn't stop to ask, should they? Exactly. Yeah, that sounds like a terrible idea because what is happening outdoors is actually happening in your body too. So, exactly. Wow. So they came up with a list of chemicals 
that they could coat a salt crystal with to stop its ability to react with moisture in the air. And these chemicals aren't so nice. One of them is called yellow prestiate of soda, which is sodium ferrous cyanide. Now, it doesn't cyanide. Take a scientist. Wow. <laughs> yeah, sodium ferrous, which is iron, and cyanide. Mm-hmm. Um, another one's called uh, calcium silicoaluminate. Mm. which is the aluminum yeah. element that you know people worry about bioaccumulation. Right. And, and these are trace amounts, and there's um, calcium phosphate's another one. There's, and in trace amounts, it's probably okay. And, you know, you're not going to mm. immediately notice a problem. But one, it's a chemical that the body's not used to getting. Right. Sodium ferrocyanide is not something you would put on your eggs if you were you know, thinking about it. Right. But you do it when we put it on our salt and then we put the salt on our food, we're transferring this. But the bigger problem is the chemical's purpose is to interact with salt and moisture Mm -hmm. and stop salt's ability to do that. So then you take that salt, which is supposed to interact and balance our fluids, and then we take that cheap demineralized salt that's coated with an anti-caking agent and then to make it worse, we put that on cheap demineralized foods yep. that we shouldn't be eating anyway. Now it's got a terrible combination. Right. Yeah. What were they thinking is like what keeps running through my head. I'm just like, why would they even do that? Do they still put that in our salt today? Or was that like just back like 10, 20, 30 years ago? Nope. That's still, if, if you, it's still a thing. <laughs> you know, listeners go to their, their shelf. And there's even sea salt. If you walk to a grocery store and oh pull the popular sea salt off the shelf and you see ingredients on that, you'll see things like calcium silicate. You'll see things like yellow prestate of soda. You might see dextrose added as an ingredient because that stops some of the other additives from turning yellow. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, and this is again on a lot of sea salt products. So I tell people just throw out the idea of looking for sea salt. Yeah. And Look for natural whole salt, and we can talk about my favorite three questions toward the end. Yes. But I think those three questions will get you a good, clean salt. Awesome. But looking for sea salt is not a good idea anymore. Okay. So you guys scratch that. Sea salt isn't good enough. It's processed and has yucky things in it. What is the difference between sea salt and other salts like pink, red, and black salts? Well, sea salt, so salt for our kitchen table, salt. Uh, sodium chloride based salt, regardless of what it's marketed as, is all can all be defined as sea salt because it came from a seabed at some point. Mm-hmm. That seabed today might be the San Francisco Bay, it might be the Gulf of Mexico, the Sea of Japan, the Hudson. So, but sea, the sea is consistent in all of those, or it could be a dead sea that's been mm-hmm. cut off, like the Dead Sea in Israel or the Dead Sea here in Utah called the Great Salt Lake. Or it could be an ancient sea, like the, the seabed in Pakistan, the Himalayan uh, deposit. It could be the ancient seabed in Bolivia, mm-hmm. which is where the Bolivian rose, or the Bolivian pink comes from. Or the, dead, the ancient seabed in, in Utah, where the Redmond real salt comes from. Mm-hmm. But seabed is, is consistent across all of those. So the term sea salt today really doesn't mean much. The difference might be the gray salt, which is a current ocean salt coming from either the Mediterranean or near the coast of Brittany, France, where they take a gray clay and they line that pond. It could be from a current ocean salt where they use a red clay to line that pond. Mm -hmm. In like in Hawaii, it could be the pink salt, which is an ancient seabed 
are typically referred to as the Pakistan deposit, an ancient seabed that has minerals and clays that are trapped in it to give it that rosy color. Mm-hmm. Same with the Redmond real salt from Utah or the Bolivian salt. Yeah. And these ancient seabeds, geologists put in the range of the Jurassic era, which would be around 150 to 250 million years That's ago. Really cool. Now, I wasn't alive to confirm the actual date, <laughs> but it was long before we had the microbeads and the plastics and some of the Exxon Valdez and BP stuff that, you know, our oceans have to deal with today. Yeah. Very cool. So what makes it pink then? And like, it's just different minerals and different locations and different like soils and stuff. Yeah. So the red color in like the Hawaiian red comes from the red clay in the red mineral salt, that rosy quartz look comes from the other minerals. Okay. So real salt's about 98% sodium chloride. Mm -hmm. And then you've got 2% that are made up of calcium chloride, magnesium chloride, and then trace amounts of selenium, zinc, manganese, phosphorus. So there's there's trace amounts of these other minerals that make up that other 2%. Some of those being this kind of a, a red clayey mineral that's trapped within the crystalline NaCl structure that gives it that rosy quartz color gotcha. for the Redmond real salt. And including the little black flecks, the, you know, the manganese and, and zinc that show up in those little teeny black flecks. Very cool. That all add to the flavor. And as we talked earlier, help to offset the sodium. Mm-hmm. I love that. It, it kind of reminds me of the analogy of if you buy an orange from California and an orange from Florida, they're going to have different nutritional properties and they're going to look different and taste different, even though they're the same thing. And that's because of where they've been grown and they're, the soil content and the mineral in the soils. And so it's the same thing with salt. It just depends on whatever is in that area as far as minerals go and soils. So my question about salt substitutes, one, I didn't even know that was a thing. What is a salt substitute and how, how do we look for it? And I am so sorry if people are like, Janique, how do you not know what a salt substitute is? Why would, I just don't understand why we would substitute salt and how do we substitute salt? Like, are these things that taste like salt, but they're not? No, they taste terrible. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. But um, so what are they? Again, back in the, back when, Salt was seen as this negative thing, yeah. but you still wanted food to taste good. Mm-hmm. They tried to, manufacturers tried to find a way to reduce the sodium chloride content in salt. So they would cut the sodium chloride in half and mm-hmm. add other things to it. Like what? Um, it might be potassium chloride, magnesium gotcha. chloride. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. Um, and other additives. Now, what's interesting is if you pick up any salt substitute, and you know, it might be called like light salt, no salt, new salt, half salt, things like that in the grocery store, and you turn the label over, you'll see a warning that says, for normal, healthy people. Mm-hmm. Wow. You'll never see that warning on a normal salt. It's only on the salt substitutes. And the reason is a lot of those have a refined potassium chloride added. Now, you and I both know potassium is essential for life, right. but you don't get that. You don't want that in the form of potassium chloride, right. especially like in an IV situation. Right. The, the last IV in a series of lethal injections is actually potassium chloride because it stops the heart. Oh my gosh. And so that's why a salt substitute has oh. a warning that says for normal, healthy people, consult your general practitioner before use. Because again, people think that salt's bad. Right. They go to the hospital and they get an IV of salt water. But potassium chloride is way worse than salt. When I think of 
the people making the rules around our, I wish people could like see me right now. Like my, my hand is on my face and I'm just like, how did we get here? <laughs> like, it's like the blind leading the blind when it comes to food. And they're actually not food experts. They're money experts, right? When they make these things up, you know, you, you have to think because this is like basic biology. This is basic science. Like, how did we mess this up so badly where we're putting like toxic substances in food and we're taking away really incredible substances that feed, like help your gut and your adrenals and your brain. Like it just makes, and every single cell in your body, you guys, every single cell in the body requires sodium, every single cell. And if our cells are shriveled up like raisins, they're not working properly. We need salt to make sure that they're plump grapes, not shriveled up raisins. So Anyways, and part of this, you know, when, when people are making lifestyle changes and they're moving away from a very processed, refined food, whether eating out of, you know, cans and boxes mm-hmm. and salt is a very inexpensive preservative. Yeah. And if it is a manufactured processed salt, it's even a cheaper because they've, right. they've already pulled out the nutrients. And so if you're eating processed foods, mm-hmm. you're getting high amounts of processed salt, salt. which is a, which is a bad combination. Yep. Yep. And once you switch over and you're eating more fresh foods, either you're fermenting your own veggies and you're you know, heading down to the farmer's market and you're adding avocados and, mm-hmm. and all of this fresh food, you can't get enough sodium based in just eating celery or right. eating avocados. Right. That's why humans have always had to have salt to add to food. But if you're eating a lot of processed foods, you're getting copious amount, high amounts of yes. processed salt. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, again, a bad combination. And what's unfortunate is I think we've kind of forgotten how our bodies, our bodies talk to us, right? If, if we're low on water, we get thirsty. Yeah. And we know we're supposed to get to take a drink. Mm-hmm. Well, today, because we haven't been used to eating salt when we have a salt craving, we actually think we're craving potato chips or yes. we're craving French fries. Mm-hmm. We're not. We, we don't need French fries. What we need is the good, clean salt. And so our bodies need to kind of retrain them. And when right. we think, oh, man, I'm really craving some potato chips or a French fry by taking a salt crystal, a, a clean, natural salt crystal mm-hmm. and sucking on it mm-hmm. or putting a little bit under your tongue with a big glass of water, many people find that those cravings for for either fatty, salty foods mm-hmm. or for even sugar. If you think you're having a sugar craving, you actually can put a little salt under your tongue. Yeah. And oftentimes that salt and water will, will satisfy what you thought was a sugar craving when in fact it was just a salt or fat craving. Exactly. And even better yet, like cook up some vegetables to counterbalance all that sodium with the potassium. And you have like the perfect like ratio of sodium to potassium in your body and you will crave less food throughout the day and you'll be more satiated because your body's getting exactly everything it needs. There's an image in one of my lectures, my gutsy health membership lectures, where it shows processed food, sodium to potassium content and then whole fruits and like vegetables, sodium to potassium content. I'm going to try and find that image and post it on Instagram and see if I can put it in the show notes somewhere, you guys, because it will blow your mind. It will make so much sense when you see this visual and you'll be like, oh, okay, this is why we have our problem. Because man has created an imbalance in minerals when it comes to food, whereas nature packaged our minerals together perfectly, just perfectly. So salt plus vegetables equals happy, healthy lifestyle. Like I always tell my people, like load up in salt, eat all the vegetables you want, load up on the salt. When I was talking about adrenals earlier, something that I always talk about in my stories on Instagram is adrenal cocktail. And all that is an adrenal cocktail is sodium, potassium, and vitamin C. 
and it's high amounts. When you drink this stuff, it is salty. It's nasty. It's not good. You might want to get it in pill form, but but that's the point. And I tell people, take it at 10 and take it at two, because that's when you get the, the morning crash and the afternoon crash. And I kid you not, so many people, you guys, so many people message me and they're like, I don't drink coffee anymore. I don't take a nap in the middle of the day. I'm energized. I can tell when I don't take my adrenal cocktail. It's literally three ingredients, sodium, potassium, vitamin C. We need salt. Our bodies need salt. Because we grew babies, we need salt. Because we live in a stressful day and era, we need salt, you guys. So make sure you're eating your salt. Hey, Daryl, can we talk about iodine real quick? Because people always ask me about, about iodized salt. Like, should I be doing that because of my thyroid and et cetera, et cetera? What should we know about the world of iodized salt and if it is good for us and if it's not? A great question, because no discussion on salt today would be complete without a discussion on iodine because we've come to associate the two. Right. However, if we went back before World War One, nobody would have expected to get their iodine, which is extremely important, mm-hmm. from salt. And as you're eating foods that are rich in iodine, you're getting, you know, the seaweed, kelp, dulse, yeah. you know, fresh fish. It can be rich in iodine because there is iodine in the oceans. So at World War One, though, the draft was started, and in the Midwest, particularly, the men that were getting drafted in the Midwest had a goiter issue, which is evidence mm-hmm. of an iodine deficiency, right. And so, which made sense because in the Midwest, a lot of people are eating refined flours, refined sugars, eating out of cans, not eating a much seafood at all, not seaweed, not dulse, and not getting levels of iodine. Mm-hmm. And so... A bunch of scientists and the government got together and said, look, we have to get people to eat more iodine. I'm hoping that somebody raised their hand and said, hey, let's have a campaign on the importance of dulse and how kelp and dulse can add a lot of iodine to the diet. That, I'm not sure that happened or not, but what mm-hmm. they came up with was let's find a food item that everybody has to eat to live and let's force the manufacturers to add iodine to that food item. And, you know, like some municipalities will add fluoride to the water to force people to add some fluoride to their diet. That's a a topic for another day (laughs) because I could go on like a two hour tangent about that, but keep going. (laughs) So what they came up with, you know, they couldn't add it to the water supply. They tried to add it as a dough conditioner, like bromide is added to enriched flour, Mm -hmm. which is another topic of (laughs) a problem. And And interestingly enough, like all of these have to do with the thyroid, like chlorine, bromide, you know, like fluoride, like it's so funny. You mentioned all three things that like that they either wreck like thyroid health or they help thyroid health. So keep going. Our thyroids love halogens. Yes. So that's the halogen group. Mm -hmm. The elemental table, you've got your bromides, your chlorines, your bromides, your iodines and fluoride. And in that group, the thyroid likes all of those. And, And so if you have bromide toxicity, it actually helps or actually prevents iodine absorption. Yes. So anyway, so the U.S. government said to salt companies, you have to add iodine, potassium iodide must be added to your salt product. And if you decide not to add it, you have to put a warning on the product that says this salt does not supply iodide, a necessary nutrient. Wow. Now, what's interesting is natural salt, because they come from seabeds and seas do have iodine in them, which is why kelp and dulse and other seaweed has yeah. iodine in it. Even if the salt has a small level of natural iodine, the manufacturer must say this salt does not supply iodide, a necessary nutrient, if they're not adding potassium iodide to the salt. Mm-hmm. Now, what that did is that actually did help because even though 
when you add potassium iodide to salt, that potassium iodide that's added is less than 10% bioavailable. Mm. So you could add 150 micrograms to your diet via salt, but you're only going to get 15 of that 150 because right. it's just not a very bioavailable form. Right. But 15 micrograms is better than zero. Right. And so it did actually help, but it's not a very, like we've talked before, it's not a whole, and it's not a very bioavailable or gut-friendly version of iodine. And so most people, especially women, as you know, are iodine deficient for right. a number of reasons, whether that's halogen toxicity, whether that's diet, whether that's a lot of different you know, factors involved. And most people should be going out of their way to seek good sources of iodine, be that food, or even if they can't get enough via food, a good clean iodine supplement. Right. But salt is not the way to get iodine. Okay. That's, that's really great to know. I, I would love to talk about the halogens and how you mentioned bromide and fluoride and how those literally block the receptors for the iodine to reach the thyroid. And so if we're drinking, you know, tap water and we're eating bread, we are inhibiting our body's ability to absorb iodine. And then we're getting like non-bioavailable iodine from our salt. And then we wonder why, you know, a third of women are walking around with thyroid dysfunction. Well, I was just going to say, and the real problem with iodine deficiency is you know, sexual health, tumor growth, mm-hmm. all of these are linked to iodine deficiency. So right. we just can't afford not to get good sources of iodine. An analogy that I like to, to help people understand with the halogen contamination is if you look on the periodic table of elements, the top of the chart is the larger elements, and then it goes, they're listed by atomic weight. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the size of the particle, the atomic weight, iodine is actually the biggest of the halogens. It's mm-hmm. a really, it's a lot bigger molecule. And as you go smaller to the bromine, the chlorine, and the fluorine that are underneath that, or the, that are smaller, if you were to take a big bucket of steel balls mm-hmm. and you put a magnet in there, and in this bucket you have big, great big balls of steel and little teeny balls of steel. Mm -hmm. As you move that magnet around, the Mm -hmm. little balls will work their way in and push the bigger balls out. That's such a good analogy. And and so that's what happens with the iodine. The iodine actually gets squeezed out. The the halogens, the the thyroid loves all of those. Like the magnet will like any of those steel balls, Mm -hmm. but the little ones force their way in and push the big ones out. And that big one that gets pushed out is iodine. Daryl, that's such a brilliant analogy. Holy cow. I'm so glad you shared that with listeners. And it's so important. I mean, I know Carlin did a podcast episode with Dr. Red on Hashimoto's and thyroid. So if you guys want to learn more about thyroid, go ahead and do that. But what Daryl just spoke about right now, you guys, I wish everyone understood that because we are bombarded with those teeny tiny little magnets that are pushing out the big ones and we actually need the big ones, the iodines. So Daryl, can you tell us a little bit about how salt is generally produced and how is real salt produced? Yeah, so salt comes from a variety of sources. It can come from a current ocean, and in the current oceans, they're about 2 to 3% salt. So you take the current ocean water, you evaporate the excess water off, and then you're left with sodium chloride and these other complex chlorides and minerals that are in the seawater. That's how it's always been done from ocean water. Now, today, with different liners, you can leach out and precipitate these other elements. Mm-hmm. Um, these other complex chlorides can be pulled off. And then you can add a series of chemicals so it doesn't clump together. That's how salt would come from a current ocean. We also have ancient seabeds. So like in the Midwest, under Kansas and under Chicago, 
there's these ancient sea beds, but they're so far down, they're not really economical to mine. And so you can take fresh water, pump it, you know, thousands of feet into the earth, that fresh water will eat away at that seabed that's trapped within the earth. You can pump that solution back up and then you can evaporate that salt water just like you would from a current ocean. But you've, instead of a current ocean, you've pumped water in, you've made mm-hmm. a saline solution and you pump the water back out. Okay. When you do that, then you can, the same thing, you can pull off other minerals, then you can add chemicals to it. Mm-hmm. The third way would be an ancient seabed where the seabed was trapped you know, eons ago, and it solidified and created a sedimentary, you know, deposit when that salt from that prehistoric sea settled off and evaporated. And then it's been trapped under heat and pressure. And then you've got this, this salt cavern that you can mine, which is what we do with real salt here in Utah. So it's a, it's a seabed that's about a quarter mile wide, three miles long, 5,000 feet deep. And we just chew the salt with a kind of like a mantis filler, like for your garden, but Very cool. it's a carbide tip that chews the salt off the wall. And then we just crush it and we screen it. So we don't add anything to it. We don't take anything away. We just leave this ancient seabed in the form that it was in when nature laid it down. That's very, very cool. How did real salt get started? So I kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier. Um, right. And underneath my grandfather's farm, there was this beautiful you know, salt crystal that just happened to be, you know, serendipitously under the farm. Mm-hmm. And the farm wasn't doing that well. So they dug down and, and uh, started harvesting the salt. And the term real salt was born because they didn't know what else to call it. It, was, I love that. it wasn't a genius marketing campaign that some people think we were geniuses. No, we just uh, were pretty boring and said, what is this? It's, it's just real salt. Right. And the name stuck. <laughs> right. And you guys have just grown and grown and grown as far as like a company and how are you guys, if you don't mind me asking, how are you guys associated with like Redmond? Because it's, isn't it called like Redmond Real Salt? And you guys are now like you have multiple farms. And can you tell us a little bit more about your company? Yeah. So the town that this salt deposit is in is just north of the town in Utah called Redmond. Mm-hmm. And it's called Redmond because there's three red mounds that oh. are behind the town. And so the settlers called it Redmond because That's... there was red mounds. Uh-huh. And and so that's where the salt is from, is from, from Redmond, and mm-hmm. uh, it's salt. And so that's, again, it wasn't great marketing. It was just a name and a and very descriptive uh, marketing term, real salt. And, you know, started out with this idea that we want to create a, a company to treat people and products like we'd like to be treated. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what the company's maintained ever since. And so we try to introduce products that are simple and clean and real. Yeah. And then have a company that we try to encourage our associates to live on purpose and to stay curious and the relationships matter. So we have this tagline that we say, elevate the human experience. Yeah. We try to do that with our products and with activities for our team members. And it might sound overly utopian and, and maybe it is, but we try to have uh, created a family of products and a family of companies that people can connect with and uh, that can add value to our families and to hopefully some other families as well. Can I, can I speak to that for a second? Because it was Julie who invited me over to one of your guys's uh, locations in Heber. And I was floored by the family environment of like, everyone loves each other. Everyone holds such a high standard and you can like feel the love. Like Daryl, I'm actually super impressed by the culture in your company and how you guys just want to put out good product and you just want to do like 
do better for the environment and do better for people's health. And like you said, you want it to be clean and you want it to be simple. And you do have that really great utopian kind of environment, which is is very rare for big companies. And so I do, I want listeners to know that because I do speak very highly of your company, not just because your products are amazing, but because the culture is as well. And to me, culture is everything because you know, one of my, my catchphrases is where thoughts go, energy flows. And you guys put out really good energy and you put out really good product. And we need to elevate more companies like this, more companies that are not just about consumerism and the bottom dollar. It's about how can we put more good mojo into the world? Because that creates a really beautiful karmic effect that helps you guys and it helps the planet and it helps our communities. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me out to your guys's company and and this was like a year ago, you guys. They didn't just invite me out and then they're like, let's get Daryl on your podcast. This was, no, it was like 18 months ago that they invited me out. Like, so, so I don't want anyone to think like, oh, they, they're just patting each other on the back. I was really, really genuinely super impressed. So thank you so much. And I think that's a really good segue. Um, you know, I kind of teased earlier that I had these three questions that I like yes. to share with people. When people say, hey, Daryl, you know, how do I find a good salt? And obviously I'm a little biased, but <laughs> there's some other really good salt out there. And I think these three questions apply universally to, to salt as well as to great veggies. If you're heading down to the, to the farmer's market or the, the local grocery store to find good veggies, I think these, these same three questions apply universally. And even if you're going to go buy a backpack for your hike up in the hills, I think these are three great questions. And so the first one is know who's producing it. When it comes to salt today, particularly, it, it gets really hard to find the producer of, of the salt because you might go to the grocery store and there's this canister and it says salt in it, but you don't really know who are the people behind the item. And I think that's really important, not only for the, the mojo and, and some of that energy that you talked about earlier, but also because it allows you to ask the next two questions. Mm-hmm. So once you know who's producing it, then the second one is know the source. You know, where is it coming from? In salt, that can be pretty important because right. we have things, unfortunately, like the Exxon Valdez spill years ago or yes. the BP spill. And during those events, I probably would not want to source my salt from areas right around where that took place or the Japan disaster. You know, yeah. I don't know that I want my salt out of the Sea of Japan right after radiation the, the spills. And, yes, exactly. And so knowing the source is, I think, really important, whether you're getting goji berries or you're picking out some nice butter lettuce from the farmer's market, you know, what field, what kind of chemicals, you know, are are in that field. And so know who's producing it, know the source. And the final question is, what's the process? You know, what are they doing to it? Are they they taking anything out and are they putting anything in? And I think, you know, whether you're buying, you know, salt or you're buying a supplement or you're buying some veggies. If you can know who's producing it, if you can find out the source and then find out the process, mm-hmm. I think we're going to all make better consumer choices, yeah. be that our next mountain bike or our next kale chips or mm-hmm. our next salt. Well, and the difference between, and I want to go back to like how ocean salt is, there's, there's tons of pollution in the ocean and, you know, from radiation to these chemical spills, but your, yours is like an ancient salt cave that's been untouched by civilization, which is, I think, really important to know, right? Like there's no chemical spills in there. There's nothing. It's just been really protected by nature and continues to be protected. 
Can I ask a really controversial question? Because this keeps coming up online and there's a lot of misunderstanding around like heavy metals where like people keep saying, well, they found trace amounts of lead here and they found trace amounts of lead there. Can you talk to us, Daryl, about what these numbers mean and should we be concerned? Because lead in concentration, yes, can be really problematic, but we also need to recognize that it is a natural element too. When are we going too far and we're becoming too anxious about these topics of like contamination? That's a great question. And obviously, we all need to be concerned about heavy metals and and nobody should be going and eating lead bars. At the end of the day, you know, lead is still one of the top elements that occur in our planet. And Mm -hmm. until we leave the planet Earth, you know, all these metals that are on the Earth naturally are things that we're going to have to deal with at some point, whether you buy a bag of organic, you know, sunflower seeds or kale chips, because there is trace amounts in the soil there is going to be trace amounts in our environment. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't excuse the, the pollution from leaded paint and leaded gasoline right. and, and contamination. You know, we, we obviously want to avoid that as much as possible. But in, in comparison, I think that's what we need to look at. So the typical concentration of lead in our soils is around uh, 11 to 17 parts per million. And mm-hmm. so just if you went in your backyard you know, and picked up any soil, between, you know, 17 to even 400 parts per million is what the EPA considers normal. Mm-hmm. Above 400 becomes problematic and you don't want to have, you know, playgrounds and soil around your house if it's over 400. Mm-hmm. In terms of salt, it is a minuscule, minuscule percentage that shows up. And sometimes you'll see it and sometimes you won't because mm-hmm. the testing amounts are so small. But in relation, a lot of people will look at lead and they'll look at water. And so they'll say, well, in, in a water supply, the lead safety standard is, you know, X amount parts per billion. And off the top of my head, I don't know that number. But when you think about water supply, that's interesting because all of us should be drinking a lot of water in a day. Let's say, you know, one of the ratios that somebody uses is half your body weight in ounces. And so right. whether that's the right number or not, maybe that's a different discussion. But if I'm 150 pounds, that means I should, using that ratio, should drink about 75 ounces of water, which is, you know, going to be, you know, maybe half a gallon or so. Mm-hmm. So when I'm drinking that, you know, eight pounds per gallon is is the, the weight of water. And so if you're having a, a quarter teaspoon of salt versus an eight gallon source of water, the, the ratios of the consumption can be different. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yes. So, the parts per million, the actual milligrams per kilogram in eight gallons of water mm-hmm. versus, you know, that you're consuming versus consuming a quarter teaspoon of salt is extremely different. And so we need to first off, not use the water standard for your kale chips, because gotcha. then you're not going to ever eat vegetables again. Right. And then the other thing when it comes to lead is lead isn't lead isn't lead, meaning there are minerals that are bound to lead in, in the soils that are different than, than refined bioavailable lead that you would, you know, you right. might eat if you were to go and eat lead. Which, right. So it's just very different. The science is a lot more complex than right. just than this particular standard is used universally. So when somebody says, hey, I saw a report that the Himalayan salt has, you know, 0.00 parts per million, you know, that doesn't concern me because if they tested their lettuce, they would also see something very similar. Yes. And to me, that's very different than lead-based paint and leaded gasoline because 
as long as we're here on the planet Earth, we will have trace amounts of lead in our environment and in our natural diet. And our bodies are actually designed to process and deal with small amounts of lead because it's done that since the dawn of time. Um, It hasn't been able to deal with high amounts of processed or artificial or refined manufacturing byproduct Mm -hmm. of lead. But the trace amounts of natural lead in our environment has always been that way and will always be that way until we leave this planet we call Earth. Well, and and like you said, the difference between lead paint and lead found naturally is very different and it's not going to be bioavailable. I always think of like mud or clay. A lot of people will take clay to do like detoxifying because clay will bind to certain heavy metals, right? So clay is not going to go into your body and release the heavy metals. It's actually going to bind to it and then you're going to poop it out. So if you are, go ahead. I was going to say, you're right. Clay is a natural chelator and you don't sell it that way for humans. But if you have a dairy, you know, actually you feed clay to your pigs and to your chickens and Mm -hmm. to your, you know, livestock to reduce the heavy metal toxicity. And and there's good studies that show if you feed pigs or feed tilapia clay, it reduces the cadmium, the mercury and the lead levels Mm -hmm. because it's this natural chelator. And so when you have trace amounts, of natural clay and salt and within that natural clay structure there is a you know small microscopic you know particle of lead that's bound Mm -hmm. within the clay particle that's not like leaded gasoline exactly it's not going to be released into your bloodstream and into your cells and into your brain and cause dysfunction it's going to stick to the clay and you're just going to poop it out kind of thing so it's like bioavailable versus like non-bioavailable and so I did because there's been a lot of talk on the internet about, you know, lead and heavy metals and people are becoming more and more aware of it. But it's the issue is when we are taking these natural resources, like you said, lead is a natural resource, but we're mining it and hyper concentrating it and then putting it in product that makes it very absorbable for us in our bodies at these higher concentrations. That's when it's super problematic. A similar analogy, and it's not exactly true, but it would be somewhat similar, is aluminous silicate is something that we take all the time um, mm-hmm. in our environment. It's basically trace amounts of, of sand, essentially. Mm-hmm. Aluminum silicates are all over in our environment. And aluminum silicate is very different from aluminum mm-hmm. um, or aluminum, depending right. on if you're from the UK. Yeah. So <laughs> aluminum, we know, is bioaccumulative. Right. But if you have silica attached to aluminum, it's actually negative. It, right. there, there's no, the silica does not let go of aluminum right. in the body. So you can take an aluminum silica. That's different than eating aluminum that's been processed and and lead when it's bound up is different from a refined lead Mm -hmm. yeah so i hope listeners i hope that is a really that's a really great concept for people to take into account when they are reading information online about like heavy metals and it's all of these things that do create uh problems in our in our lives but when we are seeing it in these really, really, really small forms that are not bioavailable, like no need to freak out kind of thing is what I want to say. I hope I said that well. I think (laughs) another, you know, example of that is we know that hydrogen is an explosive gas. You know, they Mm. make the H-bomb with it, right? Hydrogen is super explosive. But if you put two hydrogen molecules next to an oxygen molecule. It's water. It's water. Exactly. Chlorine gas. Chlorine is a deadly, very acidic gas. Mm-hmm. That's what they used in the concentration camps and in the gas chambers was chlorine gas. Right. We know it's deadly. And sodium is a very caustic ally. Actually, if you have refined sodium sitting in a, on a table and you drop a single drop of water on refined sodium, it'll mm-hmm. blow up Yes. because it's that caustic. But yet yeah. you put one sodium 
with one chloride mm-hmm. and now we've got this beautiful thing called salt. And so chemistry is a lot more complex than, you know, somebody on the internet saying, oh my gosh, you know, right. there's this trace amount of lead. It's going to kill everybody. And mm-hmm. no, lead is, lead is a problem for sure. Yes. But we need to look at the chemistry beyond just seeing PB, which is the, exactly. the elemental form of lead and see what it's occurring with, what it's attached to, because chlorine gas is different than sodium and chloride. Right. And when you have aluminum that's refined, it's different from an aluminum silicate in nature. And when you have lead that's bound within a clay structure, that actually that clay will actually bind additional heavy metals lead. to mm-hmm. it. Exactly. It's not going to release the small amounts with the clay. Exactly. Exactly. So listeners, I hope that made sense because that's that's super, super important to know moving forward so that we because I don't want to create paranoia or or fear around these things because like Daryl said, it's chemistry is so complex. And when we try to simplify it and we simplify it too much, then really the the truth gets missed. Anyways, Daryl, what are some uh, great salt resource books that people could read about if they want to know more about salt? One of my favorite ones that I share with my listeners and um, and on Instagram is The Salt Fix by Dr. James uh, DeNickel. How do you say his last name? De Nicol Antonio. De Antonio. Like he's one of my, that's one of my most favorite books. I wish everyone would read that book, but what are some other resources that people can seek out to learn more about salt? That is one of my favorites. That's a great place to start. And then another one is a book called Salt, Your Way to Health. Mm. It's written by an MD in the Midwest. His name is Dr. David Brownstein. I really like his book on salt. And if any of your listeners are interested in exploring iodine a little more in detail. Dr. Brownstein has another great book called Iodine, Why You Need It and Why You Can't Live Without It okay. by Dr. David Brownstein, two, two really good books. And then for any history nerds out there that uh, would like to learn a little more about just salt history and salt in general, there's a great book called Salt, A World History. And that's another great book that uh, is just fun to read on salt's role in civilization since the dawn of time. Amazing. How can people find your guys' salt? You you guys are, you have your storefronts, you have, you can find it on Amazon. If you guys are local, they, oh, Redmond has like the best restaurants ever. I mean, they went from salt to like raw milk to all these other incredible things to like their incredible, like little buffet place, not a buffet, but restaurant. But how can people find your company if I haven't already mentioned it? So redmond.life is the website, not .com, .life uh, is our main consumer product, kind of that side of the business website. So if you go to www.redmond, which is R-E-D-M-O-N-D, redmond.life, it has the salt page there as well as some of our fun body care products and a few of our electrolyte replacers and and if you're interested in just the salt in general, since that was today's major topic, uh, you can just go to real salt as opposed to fake salt. You go to <laughs> realsalt.com and we've got our information on, on this ancient seabed and mineral salt from Utah there. Awesome. Daryl, it was so great to interview you today and to talk about this really important topic. Thank you so much for your time because I know you're very busy. So. Thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening and learning about this incredible topic. We're so grateful to have you here listening with us. Daryl, is there any parting words of wisdom you would want to leave listeners with before we close up today? Well, Shanique, I really appreciate you having me on your program today. And I think we've covered pretty much everything that uh, I wanted to cover on salt. But 
if there was one thing that I try to do, and I don't always, I'm not always successful at it, but I, I try to live intentionally more and more and try to put myself in the, the place of most potential. And so I think by not being item focused, like I'm going to focus on work, I'm going to focus on family. I like the idea of, of living intentionally and putting myself in the place of most potential. And on one day that might be with my wife and my family. One day it might be mountain biking on my own. One day it might be in the office. But I think as we all try to live more intentionally, we'll all be happier and probably all of us will benefit each other more than if we're trying to you know, meet somebody else's preconceived notion of, of where we should be or what we should be. I love that. Thank you so, so much. That wasn't sciencey at all. That was just like, you know, it, it kind of goes with my where thoughts go, energy, energy flows. Let's be intentional about where our energy goes instead of just being, you know, left for the, the waves to hit us this way or that way. So thank you, Daryl. And again, thank you, listeners. We'll be back next week. Take care.